for the general public to know that there's a DFib potentially in every chemist in Australia with an army of pharmacists that can act under pressure, that's something that for me could make a significant difference to that survival rate of only being 6% in the community. Hi, I'm Guy Leach, former Australian Ironman champion and a community health advocate at Heart 180. And you're listening to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast. Welcome to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast, brought to you by the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. Focusing on pharmacy management and ownership, the PBCN podcast supports the improvement and growth of your business performance with insights and advice from a range of industry professionals. The PBCN podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. Guy Leach is a former Australian Ironman champion. Retired from competition, Guy is now a community health advocate, helping Australia gain an awareness of the risk and prevalence of sudden cardiac arrest. In helping Australia become heart smart, Guy's mission is to ensure Australian businesses and communities have access to life-saving defibrillators. Guy discusses his own experiences that led him to establish Heart 180, a group on a mission to give all Australians access to a life-saving defibrillator within 180 seconds of an emergency occurring. Through Heart 180, Guy is driving awareness of just how common an emergency can be and helping businesses become equipped to deal with these life-changing events. As professionals on the front line of patient care, pharmacists and pharmacy staff stand to benefit greatly from the lessons and resources available in this episode. Here's Guy. Guy, thanks for joining us on the show today. Firstly, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, some of the things that, that you've achieved? Firstly, for those of us who know you well from your career as an athlete, but also what you've been working on with your community advocacy. I suppose people that are middle-aged would, would remember me. I started as, a, as an Ironman athlete back in the 80s. I was the, um, the first ever winner of a, of a professional Ironman race in the world. So and I picked up $20,000 worth of gold you know, from a race called The Cooling Out of Gold, which was actually a movie um, under the same name. And that I raced in the real race that was put on for that movie. And they filmed the real race and then cut that into the actual movie. And, um, and I was a recipient of, I suppose, something that no one's ever done before, which was uh, actually make money out of that, that. And a sport was launched off the back of it. So for the next 15 years after that, mate, that was my job. My job was to, uh, to train, train every day, three times a day, race, and um, and I did the thing I loved the most. So I was very, very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time, and that was a like an awesome, an awesome chapter of my life. And by the time I hit 35 years of age, I, mate, I was time to to move on. I was one of those lucky athletes that sort of knew my pathway after that, and I got into health and health and fitness, and I built up a I suppose a, a solid business around my name, my brand, and extended that through from you know being a, a fit Ironman into being a, a voice and advocate for health and fitness in Australia. And um, I, I had things like my own range of clothing in big W stores across the country, fitness equipment. Um, had had deals uh, with Booper as their wellness ambassador in Australia, amongst a whole bunch of different things. I had. Um, I had a whole you know, sports program in Anaconda stores across Australia with stand-up paddleboards and kayaks and you name it. So it was, it was a good time and I, I trained people like Madonna, 
Hugh Jackman over the years, um, um, a lot of a lot of celebs, and then also celebs that actually wanted to lose a lot of weight. I trained people like Dicko that used to um, be on Australian Idol, um, Jonathan Coleman, who is still on television on Channel Ten now. Um, mate, we got him from 136 kilograms down to 95 in uh, in a year, and and mate, he kept that weight off for the next decade. So you know, mate, it was a good run. And then when you said, "What do I do now?" Well. And it, it all took a turn four years ago when in one of my fitness classes that I, I take on the northern beaches of Sydney, mate, one of my very best mates had a cardiac arrest during or at the end of the session. And I ended up on his chest having to try to bring him back to life. And, you know, it um, it was a moment that, you know, changed the course of what I was doing and what I wanted to do moving forward. And, and my mate didn't make it and he didn't make it because I didn't have a defibrillator close by and, and couldn't kickstart his heart back into gear and uh, I didn't know that at the time. So when I was doing the Ironman sport back in the 80s and 90s at the surf club and doing all those things, there was no such thing as defibs down there. And I left the surf club um, back in sort of year 2000 and fast forward, you know, 16 years and there I was on my mate's chest. Um, it's pretty much in a hopeless situation that, that I didn't know. I thought I could get him back. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, I learned after the fact that, mate, with sudden cardiac arrest, which is Australia's number one killer, you have to have a defib. It's the only way you can restart the heart. You've got to get it on the patient in 180 seconds. You need to have one close and all these things. And so because of that, that led me to what I do now, which is um, educating, motivating people to to uh, to get a defib um, and... And, and distributing them around the country. And my, my sole mission now is to get a defibrillator within 180 seconds of any Australian that's going to suffer a, a sudden cardiac arrest. So, man, that's what I do now. You spoke about the sudden cardiac arrest being the number one killer in Australia. It really did open your eyes to a startling problem in Australia, didn't it? Can you talk around some of the numbers there for me? It's scary to think. The first thing that's disturbing is that of all the people that I would ask about this and question them on what's the biggest killer in the country, you know, what do you think, what do you think the numbers are, do you know what a heart attack is compared to a sudden cardiac arrest, mate, no one got the right answer. Right? And these are educated friends of mine that are in high places in business and all the rest of it and, mate, no one got the right answer. So people are like, oh, cancer, car accident, heart attack, What's the difference between a heart attack and cardiac arrest? I don't know. So, you know, it was it was really alarming for me to to just understand the state of play in this country. And so when you start talking about electrical issues with the heart, which is what a sudden cardiac arrest is, mate, nearly a hundred people today will die from a electrical issue with their heart. And eighty percent of them them will die in their homes. And with um COVID nineteen the way it is now, that number will even grow with self-isolation, people working more from, from home. So, you know, when you start talking about nearly 100 people today, we're talking about a kid under the age of 10, talking about a couple of teenagers or more, 20-year-olds, fit people, people that are, you know, generally healthy right through to the other side of the spectrum. So it doesn't discriminate between age groups. It doesn't discriminate between healthy people and not, and and really fit people and not. So it, it's a it's a really scary one, 
And when the, the, the dust settles on COVID-19 and we get back into normal life and in years to come where we don't even talk about COVID-19, right, the issue with sudden cardiac arrest will still be there. And, and it is the biggest problem that we've got in this country. And ironically, it's the one that we can solve because we've got a solution and it costs a couple of grand or more, not much more than that, to go and, um, to go and save someone's life. So, you know, for me, it, it's frustrating. Um, I get that we're in a state of play at the minute where, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are hurting, but once the noise settles on COVID-19, you know, I'm, you know, very much back into what I've been doing, which is making a hell of a racket about sudden cardiac arrest. So you were compelled by the event that took place during that training session and not being able to save your mate. That's what set you on the path to create Heart 180. And you touched on it a little bit before, but if you had to give an elevator pitch, if you had to zero right into what is the mission and the vision for Heart 180, what do you tell people? First and foremost, we need to educate people to those stats and those, you know, what I was just telling you then. People need to understand just how serious this thing is and they need to understand just the, the enormity of just the deaths that we're getting from electrical issues with the heart that don't need to to occur. So that's the first thing. So there, there needs to be a massive education program out there in the marketplace in Australia. Secondly, um, I think that, you know, off the back of that, it needs to build a motivation and a desire for people to to want to get hold of these devices. And we need to dispel a lot of the myths that are out there around them the fact that people think they can't use them, that they could get sued if they go to act and, and they don't get a good result on a patient, um, the things are too expensive, um, I'm not trained up and I don't have a, a medical degree to use them, all those normal questions I get asked, um, you know, all those, you know, those myths need to be, to be sorted out. Um, and then the third thing is that we need to be able to get a defib within 180 seconds of any Australian outside of a hospital that's suffering a sudden cardiac arrest. Now, over in Seattle, which is probably the, the blueprint to what I'm trying to do, over there 70 years ago, they invented the defibrillator. And um, because of their education programs and, and just the, the knowledge on defibs because of that, that area being the founders of the product, if you drop in the streets of Seattle, you've got a you've got a 63% chance of surviving. In Australia, you drop in the streets here, you got about a 6% chance of living. So it's chalk and cheese. And you know the issue with electrical problems with the heart, it's all about time. So that that critical first 180 seconds, if you can get pads on patient, do good CPR, then you know they've got up to a 90% chance of surviving. Every minute after that first 180 seconds of no defib, you got 10% less chance of living. So unfortunately for the ambos that turn up at about 14 or 15 minutes of trying to get to you because they're they're rushing, they know it's an issue, they can't get there any quicker, mate. They can't get the person back. And so that's why the numbers are so startling. So it's not like you've tripped at home and broken your arm. You know, someone rings or you ring triple O and they take 20 minutes to turn up. Yeah, you're in pain. Yeah, it's, discom it's discomfort and you want them to get there quicker, but you're not going to die from it. The issue with what we're talking about here is it's you know, like minutes count, seconds count. So 
you know, the simple answer to all this is defibs need to be everywhere because the ambos can't save you. They can try, and if they're around the corner, they will. But, you know, reality is they're busy and they're doing a lot of stuff. And at the moment, they're probably busier than ever. And, mate, they turn up and it's, it's really hard for them because they just can't get the result they want. Education and awareness is clearly a key plank of achieving your goals. And people can certainly fall into the trap of thinking that these sorts of life-changing emergencies, they just won't happen to them. And you mentioned before, it just doesn't discriminate. And, and people kind of fall into the wrong thinking around, well, if I do get hurt, but if it is serious, there will always be help there. The ambulances will come. Can you talk to us about are there any statistics or, or demographics really around the types of people that are affected by this or is it absolutely everyone from the young to the old and it just doesn't matter and that's why it is so important that we have access to services? Today where 90, 95 people die from this, yeah, you'll get 10 or 15 people in that, in that number that will be, you know, over the age of 80 and, you know, their health's not good. Um, you know, it's people could could argue, well, you know, they they had a lot of symptoms of other issues, and you know, it was their time and the like, and you know, and and possibly, you know, to do with that, that's that's true. But but on the other side of the coin, the other sixty or seventy people that go today, they go too young, and when you start talking about, as I said before, someone un, under the age of ten that's going to die in their home today, and the teenagers and the twenty year olds that and got the rest of their lives to live, then it becomes a really, really um, frustrating and, you know, just a sad situation. So for me, when, you know, I get calls from, you know, junior footy clubs and soccer clubs and, you know, you get that terrible call once a month where they're like, oh, we need to get a deep deep. We know that you sell them. We heard you on the radio promoting them. Can we get hold of one? And you find out that someone's dropped on the, the footy field and the kid's 14 years of age then, you know, it just rings home. So to answer your question, it, it cuts across everyone. And, you know, if, you, if you've got 100 people in a room and you say, give us a heart story, you know, around someone to do that you know, whether it's family or friends, I mean, they're going to have a story for you. Every person's going to have some story, you know, whether it's, you know, a mate or their father or cousin, whatever it is. And, um you know, it affects everyone this because it just hits so many people. It's just everyone's got a story. So there's, Daniel, there's there's three types. And I, I just explain this really, you know, basically because I'm not a doctor, so I can't do it much differently. But I explain this pretty pretty basically for people wanting to understand this whole concept. And, you know, there's three ways that, you know, you're going to have problems with your heart. The, the first one is plumbing. And plumbing's, you know, around your arteries and, you know, you might have, um, plaque on the inside of your arteries and some breaks loose and you might get lucky and it flows through the, the pipes and comes out, you know, the other end and there's no issues. But, it's, you know, for a lot of people where, where there's a big piece of plaque that comes through, then it gets caught and blocked um, as it's going through, the, um, through, the, through your plumbing. And that's a heart attack. And, you know, a defib is not going to affect that. CPR, yes. Um, still put the pads on the patient, the defib decides whether it needs to shock or not, and, you know, that's the way it goes. Um, a sudden cardiac arrest uh, is an electrical issue of the heart, where the heart, the brain thinks the heart's still pumping and it's actually shaking, not pumping. 
And the shock, the shock from a, a defibrillator is the only thing that's going to bring someone back and going to restart the heart. And what it actually does, it's a, a bit similar to when your computer, your laptop or your, your phone freezes and you turn your phone off, your computer off, and then reboot it and start it again. The electric shock from a defib does the same thing with the uh, the heart and the, the electrical patterns to the brain. It just it reboots it. So that's your second way. And the third way is that it starts with plumbing and then it hits the electrical system as well. And it's a combo. And so, you know, then, then you still need a defib to get someone back from that. So there, there are your three. The most common is the plumbing leading into the electrical. Um, the not so common is just the, the, the straight electrical issue. But, you know, notwithstanding, you know, it, if it's a plumbing issue with a electrical, it's still a sudden cardiac arrest. And, and as we you know, said earlier, this is the biggest killer in Australia. So Daniel, I you know I hear that um, that you had some issues yourself around the heart. So can you tell us what happened there? About three years ago, a little bit over three years ago now, I started having some some pretty minor signs that there was something wrong. But because I was so fit and healthy and still relatively young, I was forty at the time. I was just kind of getting this weird pain on the opposite side of my chest to the heart, right really close to the sternum, just kind of felt like someone was just pushing their finger in really hard whenever my heart rate went past 130. And it would make me burp a lot as well. So I kind of just thought it was some sort of exercise induced um, indigestion or, or something like that. And I could still get through my training sessions and, and I didn't feel, you know, there's sometimes I felt pretty bad, like I didn't feel great in those sessions. And so I thought I'll go to the doctor and, and I'll get it checked out because otherwise fit and healthy. I went to New Zealand for work. I drove from Wellington to Auckland one morning and just sort of you know, ate the sandwiches from the, the service station and had the coffee in the car and then got all excited about being at a new mountain bike park and got on a mountain bike and rode straight up the top of the hill for about 10, 15 minutes, didn't warm up or anything like that. And uh, I got to the top of the hill and I thought to myself, I do not feel very good at all. And I thought it was just because I'd sat in the car for three hours and had a couple of ham sandwiches and, and coffee from the service station. And uh, I stopped and sort of just tried to collect myself. And then I started to feel worse. So I sort of sat down and then the sort of felt even worse. And I was like, I'm just going to lie down for a second. I sort of lay down and the the sky started to to spin a little bit and all that sort of stuff. And and I still didn't even think it was a heart attack because it's not those common factors that you see in the movies where the person has really tight chest all over or a pain in their arm or anything like that. So I kind of could sort of get through the ride a little bit, but didn't feel great. The next night I was in my hotel room and I lay down and I didn't feel great in my chest and I stood up and and I'd gone to bed and I stood up. I burped maybe four or five times, really big ones as I walked around the room and then felt completely fine. So went to bed, woke up the next day, finished my work trip, got back, went and saw the GP and then just had a test, had a test, had a test. And then I had super high blood pressure. I had super high cholesterol. And eventually when they do the angiogram, they're showing me pictures of three blocked arteries and they're saying to me, you've got cardiovascular disease. And I'm like, I don't understand how because there was no family history. I'm not diabetic. I don't smoke. I didn't abuse alcohol. I ate well. I trained seven or eight times a week. Last time I was sick was like 2004 when I had tonsillitis. So it was just a complete shock that something like that could just happen to 
what you would think is an otherwise fit and normal, healthy 40-year-old. It's not ironic. So the fact that you're young, you're relatively young, and you, you exercise so much, the, the normal thought is that it can't have anything to do with your heart. And, you know, you, you, you don't sit that stereotype of someone that's going to have it. And when you start talking about, like you see in the movies, well, it's never the, the 40-year-old that's fit that is the one that you you see on television, you know, on the screen that's, um, that's dropping from that. So, you know, you get sort of conditioned to the fact that, you know, that can't, that can't be real and it can't be happening. And ironically, when you say that, I, the, the, my paddling group um, of 100-odd paddlers, predominantly guys aged from 40 to 72, I said to them um, after the back of my mate dying, I said, look, you guys have got 12 weeks to go to the doctor, get a referral and go and see a cardiologist because I'm not doing this again. I'm not going to have one of you guys drop in my training class, in a fitness class, and and me have to get on your chest and try to bring you back to life. So I need you to go and get checked up now. Of those 100, and if you looked at those 100 guys, um, you would see fit, healthy people that you're like, don't have any ex- excess fat on them, and they're, you know, they look, they look in good nick. Now, of those 100, five had to go straight in and have stents put in. Right, five percent, and another fifteen on top of that had to go on medication, like blood thinning and the like, because they had issues around their heart. So, what you're telling me, I'm not that surprised because, you know, issues with the heart, um, you know, can happen to anyone, and 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 you know, you, you've obviously been unlucky based on your lifestyle choices and how you live your life. But mate, you, unless you go and get checked up. You don't know, do you? So tell me what um, what what happened when you went and got checked up. What what came back beyond that? Did they give you anything more as far as um, results? Well, in terms of the why, as you as you said, you wouldn't look at somebody like me and think that they're a prime candidate for a heart attack or blocked arteries or cardiovascular disease. And so the specialist just stops asking questions. He just says it's just genetic. And when and when my brother gets tested cholesterol fine, blood pressure fine. So there's a lot of people who will think, well, I don't have family history, so it, it won't just get passed on to me. And it's absolutely not the case. But in terms of, you're right, I I kind of see it as being lucky because now I'm perfectly fit and healthy, bad cholesterol is through the floor, blood pressure is perfect. But you know, you've got to take pills and you've got to keep an eye on things and all that sort of stuff. But it could have been so much worse. I got three stents put in, which is a fairly you know, easy thing to recover from. But they were talking about cracking my chest open and doing bypasses. That was the first thing that they were going to do. So we, you get to avoid that if you take action early enough. And as you say, raising awareness and education around these things is super important. And a lot of my friends who aren't as healthy and don't look after themselves as well did what you made your friends in your peddling group go and do they went and got themselves checked out and sorted haven't heard of anything that's been adverse in those results but it raises awareness when your friends who don't look after themselves as well as you look at you and go oh wow how did that happen yeah you become a good poster child for for getting checked up and um and, and really sort of getting you to understand your insides that you can't see based on you know one of your mates who's fitter and healthier than you actually takes a turn and has to go and have stents put in. So, it, um, you know, like you, you probably, 
you're doing a favour to your friends from from that point of view because it makes them a lot more aware. And you know, I think the the you know the, the main thing for um, people to realise listening to this is that you don't know what's going on inside you. A lot of the time, you think you're alright, and unless you're going to get checked up, um, you don't really have your finger on the pulse. And um, you know, it's better it's better to go and find out and have everything being being sweet than um, than just leaving your head in the sand and not bothering about it. So, you know, for me, I, I went and got checked up as part of that whole piece around doing the right thing and making sure, you know, I, I wanted to to know what was going on with me after my mate uh, passed away. And I found out that the right side of my heart was twice the size of what it was meant to be based on all the training I've done over the years. The muscle, the heart muscle, which took all the oxygen in, um, just grew and grew and grew because I started training from the age of eight. You know, stopped professionally when I was 35, but I've still trained every day since then or more. And particularly the first sort of, you know, 10 years after 35, I was still training, you know, up until twi- twice a day, a lot of the days. And I only backed it off in the last five years. So I had to go and saw a cardiologist and I had to go and reduce the size of my right side of my heart uh, based on doing less workload, cardio work. Um, to get it back to a size that was 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 healthier, was safer. I think one of the interesting things is how people, and I'm not going to compare myself to you, Guy, but those people that train a lot and are fit and healthy and can do hard training sessions or multiple sessions a day and might go paddling for two hours or mountain biking for three hours is that sometimes your fitness can mask these issues because of your fitness. There's a a story or, or a guy I used to know here in town in Canberra who was a gun mountain biker. He passed away when he was 22, 23, went and did a, a four-day mountain bike race in South Africa, pairs race. His partner came to wake him up in the morning and he was already dead. The autopsy shows he's got a hole in his heart and the doctors think that the only reason he even lasted to 22, 23 was because he was so fit. So just because you are fit doesn't mean that you are immune to these things. It could actually be helping mask some of the symptoms. Correct. And so there's a definite difference between being fit and being healthy. And so when I was training full-time, doing Ironman training, training 20 hours a week, three sessions a day, five days a week, two on a Saturday with a Sunday off if I wasn't racing, um, my immune system was on that border of being, you know, weak and and deprived because the amount of workload I put through my body and just the fact that I needed to do lots of training to be good at what I um, was doing in a race. But, you know, you're you're right on that border of having an unhealthy immune system because you're just depleted of white, you know, blood cells that can fight infection. So, you know, you're, you're always one step away from, you know, the next cold that came along, or the next little, little bug and virus that was going around because your, your army of white cells weren't there to fight it because they were doing four and five hours training a day and they were just tired, just tired. And so I was, I mean, I won, I won and was voted the fittest, the fittest athlete in the country two years during my career and actually competed on 60 minutes at the Australian Institute of Sport in 10 events over two days and beat every other, every other uh, sports person that turned up. Um, in a televised event, but I wasn't, I wasn't healthy. I'd get sick all the time. So there's a different difference between the two. I'd be healthier now training an hour a day 
um, each day than doing the four and five hours every day that I used to do. And if you listen to your specialist, he'll tell you that probably about 40 minutes is more than enough for good health and fitness, won't he? Correct. It's good to raise your heart rate. It's good to go and do some strength training to strengthen your bones and your muscles and the like and, um, and, and stretch. Um, but obviously going beyond a certain amount when you get into that endurance sports, well, then you're obviously pushing the envelope. So, yeah, there's a less than that as well. But when you're 20 years of age, you want to be the best in the world. Like I did, I didn't, mate. You could tell me that till I, you're blue in the face. I wouldn't care. I just wanted to win. So you know, there's obviously it's a you know different time. And you know, now I'm I'm, I'm a lot older. You um, you care more about your health than you do just about your fitness. Whereas when you're 20 years of age, you just care about your fitness and how fast you go. And we grew up in that age where they used to say, no pain, no gain. Now, Guy, reacting to these situations as responders can certainly be a harrowing experience, very stressful. Obviously, there's a lot of factors involved, such as identifying whether what is actually happening is a cardiac arrest. Then there's knowing how to actually access and, and use a defib and so on. What kind of training opportunities exist to equip people with the skills and knowledge to be able to identify and then handle these situations? I learned early on that, you know, if, I'm, if I was going to go and distribute defibs into the community, I needed to make sure that people could use them and 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 they were empowered with with enough education and training to to be able to respond and and act because there's no point having a defibrillator if you're not going to go and use it on someone when, when it's needed and, and you know and to be to be blunt and truthful it's you're under a lot of pressure when someone's unconscious not breathing in front of you and chances are you know who the person is so you, you go into stress you 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 know you're in a, a situation you're not used to um you're under pressure and you know you question yourself and so the first thing i did was when i i linked up with a defib company i made sure i did my homework to make sure i linked up with the one that was the best the one that were, had the best devices and the, and the easiest to use so that that was a big tick the second thing i did was i developed an online training program that was free for anyone that went and got our devices because I needed to know hand on heart that they could actually use the damn things and they could save someone and give the person the best chance of coming back. So we launched that the first year on a learning platform and we offer that out as part of the whole program. And only two months ago up on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, um, a lady ran out of a retail store um, 800 metres down the road to help a man that had um, had a sudden cardiac arrest, got him back to life um, before the ambulances turned up with one of our devices. She had no training other than the online training that we gave. So um, certainly, you know, first aid training and doing a lot more than just the 15 or 20 minutes that we give you is fantastic. But I know that a lot of people are time poor and, you know, and so we developed that program based on the fact that, you know, you can spend 15 or 20 minutes um, utilising what we've got there to give you yourself the best chance of getting someone back, which this lady did and she's done no other training other than that and that got this guy back to life and this guy's fine. So, you know, it is it is super critical and really important that when you get a device that you have been trained up to know what to do, and it doesn't take a lot, as I said. It you know, as little as fifteen or twenty minutes can be the difference between you feeling very comfortable and feeling very proactive 
and being empowered to go and help someone. Outstanding. Now, Guy, community pharmacies play a vital role in maintaining optimal community health and well-being across all the factors with an increased exposure to people that would be at risk, so at-risk patients in their community coming in and in interacting in a community pharmacy. How important do you think it is for community pharmacies to get involved, not only in becoming equipped to deal with these types of emergencies, but also the role that they can play in actually helping raise the broader awareness of the problem. Well, I'm excited to say that we're we're you know we're in in discussions right now to with pharmacies across you know the whole idea is to have pharmacies across the whole country to have DFIDs be trained up. I mean they're trained anyway the pharmacists, but get them specifically trained up to to our devices and. And, and have a second line of defence out there beyond doctors, um, you know, beyond on the ambos and the hospitals, to to save lives. And you know, and when you're talking about a spread of pharmacists across this whole country, and 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 just the dots that you make up across this vast land, um, for the general public to know that there's a defib potentially in every chemist in Australia, with an army of pharmacists that can act under pressure, um, you know, that that's a you know something that for me could make a significant difference to that survival rate of only being six percent in the community. So, you know, I'm you know, I'm, you know, I'm working hard at the moment to, to make that a reality. And I think that it, it makes so much sense. You know, the community, if they knew of that and that was a reality, the first thing they would think was, well, that makes sense. Why wouldn't a pharmacist have a defib? Yeah, I mean, I trust them. Right? They deal in wellness and health and safety, and you know they're there in our suburb. And if something went wrong, I know where to go, and I can get a defib there, and and they and they could save a lot. So for me, it, it makes all the sense in the world. And for me to get to that mission statement of at 180 seconds, um, having an Aussie, you know, being able to have a defib um, close by if there's a sudden cardiac arrest. Mate, it, that goes a long way to um, to making that, that mission statement uh, come true. That's great news about the direction with pharmacists. But on top of that, in addition to that, working with pharmacies, where would you like to see Heart 180 go from here? What is the pipeline for Heart 180? Because obviously you believe that it's something that businesses and government should be getting behind more. The simple answer is this. They've got to go into the community. Like we know that 80% of the deaths from that 100 a day are in homes. So you've got to go to the source. And the only way to do that is to set up what we've done and we're, we're trialling right now and we want to launch that through the pharmacy network is the neighbourhood community DFI program where the communities raise the money themselves to go and get um, inexpensive DFIBs at a low cost to a household into their streets where they know where they are positioned around about 50 houses. And that gives that 180 second spread to get a defib on a patient in that area, um, supplement the cost and make sure that a community is is safe from sudden cardiac arrest. So that, that is the next stage. Certainly we want businesses to have them. We want sporting groups to have them. We want them to be everywhere. But if you truly want to go and change this number and make a significant difference to the deaths in this country, it's got to go out to the communities and it's got to get into the streets. Guy Leach, 
this is a fantastic cause and we wish you all the success in the world. And thank you for coming on the show and raising awareness and sharing your experiences. Good on you, Daniel, mate. Good, mate. Good. Thanks for sharing your uh, story too. The statistics are telling. 30,000 deaths from sudden cardiac arrest each year and just a 6% chance of survival in the event of an emergency. It's clear that education around sudden cardiac arrest and the backing to get defibrillators into businesses and communities is sorely needed. Guy and Heart 180 are working hard to educate Australia and save lives. And it is a promising opportunity for community pharmacy to get involved with. Heart 180 provides a number of resources to get businesses the training and knowledge necessary to respond to sudden health emergencies. If you'd like to find out more, simply visit heart180.com.au. That's heart, the numeral one, the numeral eight, the numeral zero.com.au for more information. I've been your host, Daniel Loyston, and you've been listening to episode 47 of the PBCN Podcast. The PBCN Podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. For more resources, to access support or advice, or to view this episode's show notes, visit guild.org.au.